Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Great to see you. So many people are sick right now, and so many people wisely are afraid of getting sick. And I'm sure that many of you have had uh, you know, family members or friends that have you know, caught whatever's going around, the latest thing. And uh, so I'm so glad to see you guys here today. And if you're joining us online, thanks for uh, dropping in. You know, uh, I don't know, like maybe a year ago, we started a practice here on our staff. Jed leads a Monday morning meeting. We get together at 10, all of our ministry team. And we do, it's called team time. And we just kind of talk about things that we need to talk about. Sometimes we're telling stories. Sometimes we're celebrating something that we just did or kind of, uh, you know, debriefing after it, trying to learn from it. And then other times we're just like hanging out and getting to know each other. And uh, a few months ago, uh, we, Jed led us in a, in a question that he wanted us all to think about. And it was like, you know, we, we see each other every day, you know, in the office, and yet there are things about us that other people don't know. So he, Jed, wanted us to kind of come up with something that was peculiar about us. Not that any of our team would be peculiar in any way, but uh, we did this. So I just, like, I'm going to put a few of the staffers up on the screen here, and I want you to think about some of these peculiar things that were shared with us. We had to guess who this might be. So we wrote these down in secret. So one of these people uh, puts their socks on every morning standing up because they want to maintain agility. And another person uh, puts their socks on typically left foot first. But when they want to be extra creative on those mornings, they put their socks on right foot first. Then there's somebody on our team that even though they've lived in Temecula for many, many years and they know their way even to the office, wherever they drive in town, they use their GPS, even coming to the office still. So are you thinking about who this might be? Uh, And then there's somebody on our team that checks the weather app constantly, multiple weather apps, and then uh, by their own admission says that they still dress inappropriately for the weather that they've checked multiple times. And then there's one of our team that when they drive to work, they're having a protein shake that's really thick and they have to use a spoon. And so they wear uh, like an apron so that they don't spill on their clothes on the way to work. And this apron is famous for many chocolate stains on it. And then there's one of our uh, team that cuts their toenails in a particular order. So, who would you think would be putting their socks standing up because they want to maintain their agility? It's Bob. 
Bob. And he's not here today. He's on vacation. So who do you think puts their sock, their left sock on first, typically, except when they want to be creative? They switch it up. Which from our team? Are you in here? They might be back in the green room right now. That's Jed. Where are you? It's Jed. Which way did you put your socks on today? Left. Left first. So typical day. He's not very creative today. Just the usual. His creativity is way high anyway. Who do you think uses GPS all the time to drive around it? It's Pam. <laughs> Who checks the weather app all the time? Where are you, Danny? There he is, Danny. Who wears an apron all the time to keep themselves from spilling on themselves? No, actually, it's me. No. And then who do you think cuts their toenails in a certain systematic way? Me. Firemen, there's a way to do everything, right? They didn't teach me how to cut my toenails in the fire department, but... What, what I'm saying is there's so much about us that we didn't know, even though we see each other every day. And, you know, Jesus was kind of the same way in his day. In fact, there's a wonderful book, if you've never read it, I, rec I highly recommend it, by Philip Yancey, The Jesus I Never Knew. It's a fantastic read, and we'll, you'll, you'll see Jesus in a different light after reading that book. Now, if you're just joining us, to bring you up to date, we're studying through Luke's gospel here at Sunridge. And we're doing it in this calendared way where we're, we're starting with the birth of Christ to the resurrection of Christ. And we're beginning with Christmas, as we did. And then we're, the series will end on Easter Sunday. And now that we've kind of like turned a corner in the first year, we're going to be taking bigger chunks of the scripture and then picking like a key passage from that to teach. But we want to invite you to follow along with our emails. We'll let you know, like, what passages we're covering, um, you know, uh, this coming week. And then that way you can just read through, even if we don't teach it on that Sunday. And our idea here is that we're going to follow Jesus. We're going to look at his life, hopefully in a fresh and new way, by just walking through Luke's gospel that we found to be so unique. Now, chapters 1 and 2 that we've looked at so far are all about Jesus' birth, and uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the end of chapter 2 of Luke. We didn't cover it in December, but it talks about Jesus as a 12-year-old boy, and Luke, Luke is the only one that gives us that picture of Jesus' life um, as a pre-adolescent, you know, um, so that's another way in which Luke's gospel gives us these unique stories. And today, we're turning a corner beginning from chapters 3 to 9. If you just took a big chunk of that, this is, um, it, everything zooms forward in the life of Jesus and John the Baptist. So they're, they're both adults. And um, in chapter 3, John the Baptist is going out and he's preaching and Jesus is also teaching, as we'll be looking at today. And we're going to see from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, people are responding, are reacting to who they discover that he is. Who he is, what he has to say, what his intentions are, and why he came, and for whom. And you're going to see today that no one is more shocked about who Jesus was than the people who thought they knew him the best. 
the people from his own hometown. Now, just to kind of give you a big picture, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, John the Baptist's ministry has begun. He is the pre-announcer, as the angel Gabriel said he would be. And he's preaching a gospel of repentance. He's telling people, you need to change your ways. And he's baptizing people in the River Jordan, which is thick with symbolism for uh, people who were Jewish at the time because that's the river that they crossed over into the Promised Land after escaping the uh, slavery in Egypt. And so a whole new world began for them. And so when John is baptizing people in the Jordan River, they're, they're, all these pictures are coming together that there's a new thing. There's a new promise being fulfilled now. And uh, Jesus is one of those people that is baptized. So if you've ever wondered as a Christian, like, do I, should I be baptized as a Christian? I'll just say this, Jesus was baptized. And if you want to know more about baptism, you can just go to our website and then look at the upper heading that says about, and you can go down, and there's like a one-page uh, thing on the meaning of baptism and why people are baptized. In chapters 4, verses 1 through 13, Jesus goes out into the wilderness to begin his ministry and to pray. And who shows up first thing? They're gonna, we're going to find out. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. That's my friend right there, Jim Delhammer. I'm just <laughs> um, the Who shows up in the, in the desert, in the wilderness? Help me out here. Satan, right? And straightway, he's there, and he's tempting Jesus. What is he tempting him with? Old Testament scripture. Satan is quoting Scripture. In fact, Satan is a great misquoter of Scripture because he's quoting Scriptures to Jesus, the Son of God, and trying to get him to do things that God would never intend him to do. And yet Jesus is familiar with Scripture, and so he battles him back with a correct perspective on those passages. So no Scripture, right? We should know Scripture. And then following that temptation, Jesus goes to his hometown, Nazareth, to launch his ministry. And that's where we pick up today. And of course, he would start there. You would want to start your ministry with people that know you. And right away, we can see that he's gaining traction. In verse 14, news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. And he was teaching in their synagogues, and everybody praised him. So Jesus is teaching in his hometown in a synagogue that probably as a boy he attended because he's raised as a traditional Jew at that time. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. So they're familiar with this. Now to understand what happens next and how what Jesus says and why this all transpires the way it does is the typical uh, service order in the synagogue in the first century would be, first of all, they would gather, and as a congregation, they would repeat the Shema from Deuteronomy, the, the Lord our God is one. So love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And as a traditional a Jew of that day, you would, you would quote this at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day, and you would begin your service by quoting this. 
And then there would be prayer. Some, many of those are formal prayers. And then there would come a reading from God's law, the Torah. And then that would be followed up with a reading by, of one of the prophets in the Old Testament. And then there would be a teaching that would bring all of those, tithe, all of those teachings together. And then there would be a closing prayer. So that's what synagogue looked like in the first century. And so Jesus is reading from Isaiah and he's to the teaching part. And he's, he actually is mashing together two sections out of the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah uh, 61 and 58. He, he puts these thoughts together. He stands up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and unrolling it, he found the place where it was written Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he anointed me. Now what Jesus is doing here is he's teaching, exposing what Isaiah had to say what, from their Old Testament scripture. And when, when Isaiah says that he, the spirit of the Lord has anointed him, that, that is a Hebrew word from which we get Messiah, the root word. And so he, Isaiah is saying, basically, the Lord has messiahed me. He has anointed me. And anointing them was like sometimes symbolically uh, represented by like they would pour oil on you, like Samuel did King David when he was chosen as the king. It was a way of saying the spirit of God is on you and you are called to this certain thing. It was a way of affirming and confirming what God was doing through that person. And so when Isaiah said that, he was saying that I have the full backing of God in what I am saying and doing. And he chose me to do something. What? To proclaim the good news to the poor. Now when we hear good news, we hear like it's the same, it comes from the same root word as we get gospel. When we hear that, we hear it like it's a doctrine, it's a thing that we believe. But for them at this time, it's just good news. I'm here to proclaim this good news to the poor. You know, in the first century and, you know, six, seven hundred years earlier with Isaiah, this is, there is no good news for the poor. And the poor here, the way this Hebrew word, it doesn't just mean economically poor. It does mean that. But it also means everything that comes with being poor. The, uh, it, it, could, it could be the result of illness or an economic uh, issue, uh, bankruptcy, or it could be a cultural poorness or because of your ethnicity or your lifestyle. It just means that you, you are out. You are not part of the religious center. Because to be that way in the first century is to, is, is, it is thought of not not because the Bible teaches, but because of tradition, it was thought to be that you were not favored by God. And poor could include someone who was very rich, like Matthew. Matthew was also outcast as a tax collector, but he's not in the inner circle. So basically, you know, Isaiah is saying that these are the people that if you were at synagogue and they showed up, you would think, what are they doing here? You know, some of you, you know, you're not regular churchgoers and you think, man, when I go, 
The, you know, like I don't go to church because the, the place is going to crash in around me. I've heard some of my friends say that when I've invited them to church. That's kind of like the feeling here. Or if you walked by them on the street, you would feel uncomfortable to be around them. Then he says, uh, Isaiah says, that he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. And if you know some of Israel's history, they've been taken into captivity. And so we don't know for sure, but perhaps Isaiah's talking about prisoners of war that have been released or people that have just been put in, you know, uh, been put in prison because of uh, debt or some other issue. And recovery of sight for the blind. And that could be any kind of uh, a miracle where someone received their sight. But also at this time, when you were in prison, when you were in a, you were in a dark dungeon and your sight was affected by those years spent in almost utter darkness. And so these people that are being freed um, are receiving their sight. They're, able to, they're not in the dungeon anymore, and they're able to see God's world. To set the oppressed free, Isaiah says, he came to proclaim as well. And if you grieved, if you had a loved one that had suffered an injustice in any way, then this is wonderful news. If you were unfairly prisoned, imprisoned, or if you were in bondage or slavery because of debt, or, be, or even because of an unfair business practice that had been uh, you know, imposed upon you, you're being set free. And then he wraps it all up with this, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this is a clear reference to what is called the year of Jubilee. And I've just put this in your notes, and you can read it verbatim, but basically in, in the Jewish tradition, every seven years was a celebration and a reset, but every seventh seven years was the year of Jubilee. And when um, remember when the Israelites came out of Egypt and into the Promised Land, they were apportioned sections of land. And this was, this was their ability to earn a living, their ability to take care of their family. This was their land, and it belonged to them. But through any kind of circumstance, maybe um, you know, a drought, bad weather, disease, either of, of their family or um, even of their crops or their, um, their livestock, or maybe just bad decisions, over time, they lose their wealth. They lose their land. Some do. And others gain that land. And there's this tradition that is set up that uh, resets all of that. Everybody goes back to square one. That's the year of Jubilee. And it wasn't just a, uh, an economic or status reset. Um, and it's not just a social justice event. This isn't a, I mean, everything means something to the Jewish people at this time. Everything has a tradition. And so this is a reenactment to them to remember when they were freed from Egypt and they came into the land. It was a reminder, a very visceral and everyday reminder. Here you are, you can start over. And in synagogue, 
when the speaker finished, the scroll, you would roll up the scroll and you'd give it back to the attendant and then sit down. And that's what happens. And then in verse 20, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue are fastened on Jesus. So everybody's staring at him, which is an indication that they're listening, that what he's been saying is riveting. Just like how you feel about me right now, right? <laughs> and in verse 21, he began by saying to them, he, so now he starts his, his teaching. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's a mic drop. There's all kinds of confusion in the audience after he says this. I mean, they're going, did he just say what I think he just said? What does that mean? I, I thought he was teaching something from Isaiah. Now he's talking about himself. Jesus is making a shocking statement. I don't know if you've, like, there, there are strategies to, like, unpack a new and fresh or shocking idea. Sometimes you kind of build up to it and you build all this framework around it and you start talking about the why and, you know, like you're coaching people up to like a big change in an organization or whatever. And then sometimes you just drop a bomb. And I remember one time when I was still with the fire department, the county CEAO at the time pulled all of the employees together. He held meetings of like about 800 to 1,000, and I think at that time there were like 18,000 employees, and we all had to come to this meeting. It was mandatory. And he, would wa he walked up on the stage in my meeting, and he started the meeting by saying this. 5% of you will be gone in the next three years. So he started with the shock treatment, right? And then he started talking about the five percenters that worked for the county, the people that weren't doing their job. And he spent two hours telling us how that had to change or you were going to be gone. That's how Jesus starts here. He starts with this shocking statement in Luke. And he's saying, I'm like Isaiah. In fact, I'm who Isaiah was talking about. And their response, you can see, they're kind of amazed, but they're set back on their heels. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? So it's kind of like they're apprehensive about what he just said. And then Jesus totally complicates it. He says to them, verse 23, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown, remember he's in his hometown, what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Have you heard that saying before? A prophet is not honored in his own country. That's kind of like the King James Version. That's what it is. And so what Jesus is doing here this is what he says. I know where this is headed. You think you know me. You're used to me. Many of you saw me grow up, but your familiarity with me is going to be a problem for you because you have all these assumptions about who I am, but there's something peculiar about me that you don't know, and it isn't how he cuts his toenails. 
He says, this is going to be really hard for you as listeners from my hometown. And he then he tells two brief stories from the Old Testament. They're stories that they're familiar with, but he's telling them in a different way. And in verse 25, first he talks about Elijah. He says, I assure you that there, are many widow, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. So the point here that he's making is there's this terrible famine in Israel's history and Elijah is sent not to an Israelite, but to a pagan widow. And there are all these Hebrew widows that don't get Elijah. And then he tells a second story of Elisha, his protege. He says, And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So the point here is that during a great pandemic in Israel's history of leprosy, Naaman is sent to Elisha for healing. He's not an Israelite. He's an outsider. So what's going on with these two stories? So remember, they know these stories. So they're not shocking to them. But how Jesus tells the story and the context that he surrounds it with is totally shocking to them. He's bringing out something in those two stories that they probably never saw before. They, they, they were so familiar with the story that they missed it. And there were certain ways that the story was told that kind of set them in a path to have a certain conventional view of it. Let me give you an example of our time. Like, I grew up, I was in elementary school in the 60s. I know. And I had to walk to school barefoot in the snow, and it was uphill both ways. No, that was my dad. So, um, and we, we learned the stories of, you know, Christopher Columbus and the pilgrims in a certain way. You know, and it was all about creating a bunch of food and how many of us drew the turkey with our hand. And, you know, but we didn't talk about the gritty part of it, which those of you that are younger, you know more about that than us. And that's been, that's been taught more. Same story through a different lens. And we talk a lot more about what was done to the Native American people in this country at that time. That's the feeling they're getting. It's like we knew this story a certain way, but the way you're telling it to me is so different. It's upsetting me. It's like kind of like, I don't like the way you're telling that story. And at the very least, they're thinking, you know, I never used to think about that story that way, but I can see how that's true. But for a lot of people, it was just upsetting. And what Jesus is saying is, by telling those stories that way, is your vantage point's going to have to change. You're going to be tempted to reject what I say 
because you have a paradigm that you're working from. It's the way you know the story. And this era that he's speaking to, he says to them, you've lost your way. You're far from God, just like the Israelites were in the lowest part of their history. And those Gentiles, the ones that you think of as unclean and were disliked and they are excluded from your presence, are worthy, possibly more worthy, of God's favor than God's people. And you think, man, Jesus, you had them. You're building your crowd, and now you're just making them mad. I mean, it's all flowers and butterflies when Jesus talks about the year of Jubilee until they start talking, and still he starts talking about how they've wandered away from the true way of Yahweh. And when he does that, they're like, wait, this is Joseph's son. Who, we know you. Who are you? You're just a hometown kid. You know, you can go to the doctor and the doctor can tell you, you know, you're overweight and you drink too much and you got to quit eating Burger King all the time. And you won't get mad. You actually pay them to tell you that. Um, and your coworker, you can be traveling with them and they can say, hey, you missed the turn or you were, you know, like you need to go back, you, you know, get out your map. Or, you know, you, you were a total jerk to that person and you treated them badly. They can get away with that, but sometimes your spouse can't. And Jesus is saying, when we're up close and we think that we're familiar like this, you're going to be offended by some of the things that I say. And your excuse for rejecting me is going to be, who do you think you are to tell me that? And right away we see he's right. In verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. And they got up and they drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Now the scene there is that, you know, throwing someone off a cliff was actually a valid way to execute a criminal in first century Rome. But that's not what's happening. This is more like a lynch mob. And they're furious with him. But Luke doesn't tell us what happens, but something happens. And they kind of stop in their tracks. They bring him to the spot that they could throw him off, and then they lose their nerve. And then Jesus turns around from the edge of the cliff, and he walks right through the crowd. I love that part. That's a total Clint Eastwood moment, don't you think? They just watching. So that's the text that we're looking at today. And I have encouraged you, we have encouraged you throughout Luke to consider five questions. I'm going to put them up on the screen again. And we're going to do part of, we're going to do part of this. But we want you to do this for the entire sections that we're reading. And we're, we're, these are the questions in our life groups that we're contemplating. And even if you're not in a group, you can get together with other people and talk about them. Or you can just like think about them during the week. Read the passage and think about these questions. Why do you think Luke took time to write this down? What made it so important? What do we learn about God? And oftentimes we learn things that are reinforced that we already believe. And sometimes we have to rethink what we believe about God. What do we learn about people? Like as we look at the people, how are they like us? How are they different? What are we learning from how they respond? 
What do we learn about the central story of Jesus and his resurrection? And what do we learn about following Jesus? So I just want to take one of those and kind of spring off of it as we wrap up our thoughts. And it's what, what do we learn about God? You guys still okay? You with me? Okay. The premise of Jesus' teaching went against the conventional understanding. This is something that's really important for us to see from the very beginning. Jesus, as a representative of the Father, as a son of God, his teaching was counterintuitive, and it went against the grain. And it turned their perspective around, those that were willing. As we talked about the upside-down kingdom, the great reversal, and for a lot of people, just rubbed them the wrong way. And this narrative shows us that Jesus is well-liked, even respected as a teacher. But there comes a point, and it's remarkably quick, quick that it comes, that the content of what he says alienates people. Even those who thought they knew him well. It's it's causing them to change what they think about God. And it's so upsetting to them that they just flash, right? They want to lynch him. And the whole matter is over two things, what Jesus says about them and what he claims about himself. And you know, those two things remain the issue today. What does God say about himself, and what does he say about us? And I've been a Christian since 1972, and I can tell you that the more I read the Bible, the more I'm surprised by who Jesus is. I, I'm constantly thinking that I know him today. I think I totally know him. And next week... I'll realize that there's something about him that I didn't know. And it will center on these two ideas. What do I think about me? And what does God say about himself? And to me, he says, you're not so hot. And about himself, Jesus says, I'm going to invite the uninvited. That's what he said here. And he's quoting a revered prophet in the process. I'm here to reach people that you think are unreachable. I'm here to accept people that you think are undesirable. I have three daughters, and so we put all three through college, and we did three weddings. And then we got to start spending money on ourselves. And, you know, when you're making a guest list for a wedding, that's real, it's really hard to figure out who gets invited, who doesn't. You go through all this agony. Usually there's arguing behind the scenes and, and uh, negotiating for different people. <clears throat> but there's always some that don't make the list. And there's always, like, if you attend a wedding, and especially if, if you know, weren't part of the process, you're kind of surprised who, but who is there and who isn't there, right? It's kind of like you go to the wedding, it's like, you're like, oh, I, 
I would have thought so-and-so would have been here. Or you go like, whoa, they got invited? I didn't know that they knew them. That's the feeling here. And, you know, Jesus used this idea of weddings many times to teach the, the who, who's in and who's out and to describe the uninvited. It was just an everyday example for them of like who, how they classed people. But it didn't just involve social events like weddings. In the first century, stereotypes and assumptions and the way we categorize people in, in people's minds, it left some people out from being able to worship even. Isn't it great that no longer happens? You guys okay? All right. It's not always, not always explicit, like, oh, I hate you, you don't belong here, why are they allowed here, we don't, like, kick them out. But we are surprised. And it can be subtle. It can be even subconscious to us. You know, um, COVID hit our house this week. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't have it. I just tested again. Um, but you know, when you do that, you know, you, I don't know, this kit, you put the swab in and you watch the pink line form or not. That's the indicator. And um, our response, once the uninvited appear to be invited, is kind of an indicator to us. See, the human reaction to the uninvited being invited is either shock or surprise. That's what comes up on the little spiritual indicator. The idea of some people being part of the invited or some people not is either um, shocking or surprising to the people then and to us as well. The surprise is like, the poor get the good news, the oppressed, the prisoner. You mean me? I'm invited? I never thought that I could be accepted by God. Wow. But when we're shocked, it's not wow, it's whoa. Whoa, that can't be. Wait, wait, wait a minute. And they and them are the labels that we use that tell us that we're being shocked by who is invited. See, Jesus eliminated the exclusion rule and the egocentric rule. He eliminated our ability to say they, they could never be in. And he eliminated the, of course, I'm in. And we see from the very beginning as we go through Luke that Jesus builds his coalition with all the wrong people, with fishermen and prostitutes and sinners and traitors. And for some people, they're just surprised that they're part of God's kingdom. And other people are shocked that those people, they, them, could be accepted. To be clear, Jesus is not saying everyone just live the whatever way you want. 
He's saying that before you thought that you were not eligible for the grace of God, but through me you are because God is not an excluder. But it isn't that Jesus is just for the oppressed, only the oppressed and only the poor, as if someone who was high-functioning or powerful or wealthy, they're not excluded. God doesn't exclude. But people do self-eliminate. There's no draft or conscription to join God's kingdom. It is a personal choice. You have free will, and you can always resign, quit the team, or drop your subscription. You have free will. The question is, how, how do you and I want to go through the next five years of our life? How do, we, how do we want to go through this time of even looking at Luke's gospel? Do we want to be inclined towards surprise? Or are we going to fall into like just shock mode? You see, one will lead to amazement, the other to resentment. One will lead to joy, and the other will lead to outrage. And one will make you say, wow. And one will make you say, whoa, wait a minute. Choose to be surprised by Jesus. Here's why. Because those who find themselves constantly surprised by Jesus become inviters. Those who are surprised are going to become inviters. They'll follow closely. They'll dissect his teachings. They'll have questions about it, and, they're, and they'll engage in it and carefully dialogue with others about it, and they'll seek to understand and to learn from him, and they'll be challenged by what he says and what he nudges them to do, and they'll allow themselves to be constructively criticized by Jesus and to be coached up. And they'll do things with people that they never thought that they would do things with. And they will nurture their relationship with God. And they will encourage other people. And they will include them. And they'll be open to what God is doing. In contrast, those that we see that are shocked by Jesus as we go through Luke's gospel, we're going to see that they're resistant. And they will argue and they'll debate every little thing with him. And they'll look for loopholes. And they'll find rationalizations. And they'll walk away. And they'll reject him. And they'll work against him. And they will seek to hurt and destroy him ultimately. And those people who are following him along with him. To go back to that wedding reception um, illustration. And by the way. If you're getting married soon and you want people my age to dance, you got to play Love Shack <laughs> or Brick House. Then you're going to get us. Um, but I digress. Um, you know, typically at a reception, you guys have this picture. It's like you, you know where you're going to sit. There's a seating chart and there's little, you see where you're, yeah, I'm at table 15. And then there's like a little card usually for, you know, where you're supposed to sit. But have you ever been to a wedding where they forgot to put a name down? 
or it's like a free-for-all or whatever, you know, on the seating. And it's like you, you, like you sit down and uh, someone says, well, you know, your name's not on here. I mean, you, you, you shouldn't be sitting here. And I go, well, yeah, I got invited, but yeah, yeah, but you don't have a card, so. And I want to sit with these people, not you. I mean, would anyone ever do that? I don't know. But what if that happened? And then the bride and groom walk up to the table and they say, hey, it's so good to see Britt here today. Um, and you're like, well, yeah, he didn't have a name tag. He's like, yeah, but I invited him, and I really want him to sit here. Would you mind allowing them to sit here? Who, who would tell the bride or the groom, uh, you can't do that. We got our table all set. You would never do that, right? Can't imagine arguing that there's no room with the bride or the groom at your table, right? Those who love the bride and groom are there to celebrate them. And they say, they'll say, sure. We would love to have you sit here with us at our table. And you know, Jesus is constantly showing up at our table. And he's saying, hey, this guy, he's with me. I invited him. And do you mind if he sits at the table with you? Because he invited the poor and the oppressed the oppressed, and the blind. I'm going to ask the band to come up now. And it, str it strikes me as I was, you know, thinking about this and studying for it, that how, how hard this had to be, particularly for religious people of the day who are devout and they have, they, they're committed to following God. And then they discover that the Messiah that they had waited for is nothing like what they thought he was going to be like. They're shocked. And some are surprised. Because they had their view of how things should be. And they're going to learn that some of those things are just misconceptions. Do you think it's possible that that could still happen? So here's my challenge. You don't have to put anybody at your table yet, okay? But you do have to play Love Shack. Um, how about that we read through Luke, that we go through this, this study of Luke, week by week, by reading, and as much as possible to do a reset, to kind of start with fresh eyes and to allow those five questions to guide us and to not just fall into our typical ruts, but to step back and think about the things that we're learning about God and others and everything that we've talked about. Because some in that day listened to Jesus, and they allowed themselves to be surprised, and they followed him, albeit imperfectly. They, they allowed themselves to be constantly disrupted. And you know, I mean, if you've been in church a long time, you know there's these stories like, 
is that what you're saying? And they allowed Jesus to reshape their thinking. And others that we see from the very beginning, they want to throw him off a cliff. But they couldn't bring themselves to do that. But they did let Jesus just walk right by them. And, you know, I picture them standing there and Jesus just walking away from them. And them just kind of being left behind in their stubbornness. Just because they couldn't change their perspective. They couldn't get a fresh new view of what God was doing in the world. Would you stand with me? And thanks for being attentive. I know I, I, I gave you a lot of information today. And most of you stayed awake even. So that was really nice of you. Um, I'm going to put this passage back up. And I want to invite you to read this aloud with me. This is what the prophet Isaiah preached. And this is what Jesus said. Join me. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is Jesus' mission, and it's ours too. And I really look forward to learning with you guys over these next few months what that means. Will you join me in worshiping together? Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.